Father, thank you for your word. It is truth. It is manna from heaven. And you've given it to us to feed on and to go in and to nourish not only our minds and our hearts, but our souls. And so I pray tonight that your spirit would lead us and guide us into all truth. Please, your word is truth. And we pray that your spirit would teach us tonight and apply these truths to our lives. Would you help us, please? We pray for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Exodus 13 to 18. All right, here we go. Exodus, uh, I've suggested to you before that the word on this book ought to be redemption. I think from last week you saw why. Uh, For some of you who have not yet been to Israel... You are saving your money, right? You need to go. Now, just a reminder for some of you who say, well, I'll never get there. Ah, contraire. (laughs) When the Lord returns and sets up his kingdom, it will be in Israel. You will be there. So we will all get to Israel sooner or later, but it would be fun for you to go before and then see it after. Uh, so here is... Oh, really? Hmm. Okay, that's a little better. Okay, so here is Israel, way up here. Little tiny. Over here is Egypt, big giant thing. Sinai Peninsula, they're going to be marching around here for 40 years. Uh, and then we've got... So, so here's... Here's the Red Sea, does this, it's got these two little fingers, okay? Well, this is where they lived. Actually, this is Canaan, I said this is Israel. Israel's up here, and uh, this is the Nile Delta. Remember, the Nile flows this way. Doesn't flow this way, flows this way. And so they were likely, Israel was up here when they left, and they're going to leave for Mount Sinai. That's where they're headed. So fun little sort of geography. If you were in a spaceship, this is what you'd see. Kind of a neat uh, picture. Anyway, Israel is redeemed from Egypt. Chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. We talked about God called out a deliverer. His name was Moses. The last set of chapters we looked at, 5 through 12, God freed his people to follow him. Remember that? We talked about the Passover lamb and that... Passover was instituted because of their deliverance from Egypt. So God calls out a deliverer, Moses. He frees his people to follow him. Big question, if you were Israel leaving Egypt, you have a question. How is God going to begin to mature those who will represent and serve him in the future? How is God going to grow me up? He's brought me out of Egypt with a strong, mighty hand. How is he going to grow me up? Answer, by teaching his people to turn the obstacles they encounter into opportunities for faith in him. He's going to teach them to turn the obstacles they encounter into opportunities for faith in him. 
If you learn nothing else tonight, learn this. Faith learns that God leads through obstacles, not around them. Faith learns that God leads through obstacles, not around them. You're leaving from Egypt for Mount Sinai. Why? Remember when Moses killed the Egyptian, he fled to Midian and to Mount Sinai, and there he encountered God. And God said, go back and get the people, and when you've freed them, bring them here. So that's why Moses is going to bring, under God's empowerment, he's going to bring the people back to Mount Sinai. Moses has already been there once, but he's going to take the people back. So the destination is Mount Sinai. And you'll look at a lot of books, and they might give you a topographical they might give you a topographical chart like this, or they might give you a map like this. So there's lots of, uh, here's the traditional route, the yellow. So they leave Ramses, they leave Goshen, an area up here. They leave and they come down this way. They hit Mara and Elim, assuming that's where Mara and Elim are. They hit Mount Sinai, and then they're going to wander in the wilderness until they get to Kadesh Barnea. Uh, there are other routes that have been proposed. This is the so-called northern route, which the Lord specifically said he was not going to lead them by. Why? because they would encounter too much opposition and he was afraid that they would get upset. So he didn't go this way. There's other people who say, well, maybe Mount Sinai was up here and maybe they went just straight across this way. Uh, other people say, well, maybe you know, it's down here somewhere and they went this way. Uh, and then there's one crazy person who actually thinks they went way down here and this is where they crossed and that Mount Sinai is over here. Uh, that crazy person is me for the very simple reason that Moses fled to Midian. Let me show you what is not Midian. This is not Midian. This is Funny. <laughs> Seems to me Mount Sinai ought to be in Midian, which is where we're explicitly told Moses fled and to bring the children of Israel back. Um, the traditional site, uh, so here's how the traditional site was identified, and there's pros and cons to this. So Constantine comes to power in about the early 300s. In those days, uh, your church was mm, measured, graded, uh, ranked, based on the relic or relics you had. If I have Peter's finger, I'm way better off than you who has a rock from, you know, 
James and John's garden. So the better the relic you had, the more prestigious your church. Well, if you're Constantine, you want your churches, you know, in Constantinople to be the best. So what do you do? You send your mom to go find some relics. And so Constantine sends his mother to go find relics. So she goes off, and she, she's coming over from way up here, and she comes down here, and she's looking around, and she stands right there, and she supposedly has a dream or a vision, and God tells her, this is Mount Sinai. And she says, this is Mount Sinai. And so they said, oh, that must be Mount Sinai. There it is. So the traditional site for Mount Sinai has some um, interesting origins. To its credit, uh, if you're in the 300s, you're only 300 years away from all these things happening. I mean, we're 2,000 years away from all these things happening, right? Plus 3,000 years. So if you were 300 years away, you got a much closer... Mm, there's probably not anybody you could ask, but you've still got a closer historical timeline than if you're coming at this thing um, in the year 2000, 2019 or something. Uh, yet the point remains, where is Midian? Again, this is not Midian. Midian is over here. Some have said, well, the Midianites were a nomad, a nomadic people. Fair enough. But some of the most eminent geographical, biblical, Old Testament geographical scholars, there is a level of consensus that Midian was right here. And so Mount Sinai is probably, okay, out of the things I'm going to die for, this is not one. I'm not dying for this. Jesus is God. Okay, we're, I'm going. I'm dying. I'm not dying for this. But Mount Sinai is probably over here. And you say, well, how in the world would they have gone from here all the way over to there in the time frame they had? Well, what time frame do you think you have? Remember, it says in the text that there is a pillar of cloud that led them by day and the pillar of fire that led them by night. How long did you say you were going out into the desert to worship this God? A week. It's not going to be until a week goes by that Pharaoh's even going to dispatch his armies. So you have a week going day and night to get to this place. It's possible. If this is possible, this is possible. It's all possible. I'll leave it to you. You do your own research. You come up with what you think. I'd love to read your paper. It'll be just as exciting and interesting as mine on this location of Mount Sinai. But anyway, you've got to figure out where Mount Sinai is in this whole story. But wherever it is, they get to Mount Sinai. Lots of amazing things happen, which we learn in chapter 13. we got the dedication of the firstborn. Uh... God finally lets the people go. 
Uh, He said he didn't lead them along the main road that runs through Philistine territory. This is chapter 13, verse 17. Even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said if the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Thus the Israelites left Egypt like an army ready for battle. They take Joseph's bones with them and they start their journey. Chapter 14, the Lord tells them where to camp. Remember this? And this is now Charlton Heston and uh, Yule Brenner. Remember Yule Brenner says, you know, I can't do a Yule Brenner. I wish I could. <laughs> okay, so Yule Brenner says, you know, the God of the Hebrews is a poor tactician. Because he's led them to the, to the Red Sea. This is not very good, Lord. You led us right to the Red Sea. So in front of us, we have to walk on water or something because we're trapped. And behind you, here come the Egyptians. Not good. And so they cry out uh, in chapter 14. um, As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked. When they saw the Egyptians overtaking them, they cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, Leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. Moses says to the people, Don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. I love then what the Lord says to Moses. Why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. Pick up your staff. And so he tells Moses to pick up his staff and he opens up the Red Sea. Amazing. The Egyptians are drowned, but the Hebrews have walked across on dry ground. Um, Interestingly, okay, so right here, there's actually, some have taken pictures of it, a land bridge underneath the water that you've never seen before. Who knows? I don't care. I, I, I get no money if, if this is right or wrong. I just think it's interesting. <laughs> the people walked through the, the, they stood up like a wall on both sides. This is how the Lord rescued Israel from the hand of the Egyptians that day. And the Israelites saw the bodies of the Egyptians washed up on the seashore. When the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him. They put their faith in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Miriam sings this great song, or Moses and, Moses and uh, Miriam do. They leave there, verse 22 of chapter 15. Moses leads the people of Israel away from the Red Sea. And they moved out into the desert of Shur. They traveled in this desert for three days without finding any water. How many days? What's just happened three days ago? Just keep that in mind. What's happened three days ago? 
God parted the Red Sea and you went through on dry ground and all the Egyptians are dead. Just three days ago. They traveled in this desert for three days without finding any water. When they came to the oasis of Marah, the water was too bitter to drink. So they called the place Marah, which means bitter. Then the people complained and turned against Moses. What are we going to drink, they demanded. Can you imagine this? Three days. You just saw this unbelievable thing. Three days later, you're going, I don't have any water to drink. Where's the Lord? Is he going to show up? Is this unbelievable? Oh, it's a little too convicting. Okay. The people complained and they turned against Moses. What are we going to drink, they demanded. So Moses cried out to the Lord for help and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. What? A piece of wood. Moses threw it into the water and this made the water good to drink. People want to know, what does the wood symbolize? I don't know. It's a piece of wood. The Lord did a miraculous thing with a piece of wood. Sweet gum. I just, Robert, I have nothing to say to that. It was there at Marah that the Lord set before them the following decree as a standard to test their faithfulness to him. Some translations say to test them and know it was in their heart. He said, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, obeying his commands and keeping all his decrees, then I will not make you suffer any of the diseases I sent on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. After leaving Marah, the Israelites traveled on to the oasis of Elim, where they found 12 springs and 70 palm trees. And they camped there beside the water. Then the whole community of Israel, chapter 16, sets out from Elim. They journey in the wilderness one month after leaving. There, too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you've brought us into the wilderness to starve us all to death. Is this crazy? One month. Let's say one week gets you to Mount si- gets you to uh, where you're going. Or, I mean, uh, um, you, you've been traveling for three, four, five, six days. So let's even say you're halfway through the month. And oh, by the way, in the first half of the month, you got the Red Sea opened. And then a stick, a piece of wood gets thrown in the water and it gets turned sweet. And now at the end of the month, you're complaining. So the Lord says, look, I'm going to rain down food from heaven for you. Each day the people can go out and pick up as much food as they need for that day. I will test them in this to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. And he tells them about the sixth day. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people, by evening you will realize it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your complaints which are against him, not against us. What have we done that you should complain about us? 
Then Moses added, the Lord will give you meat to eat in the evening and bread to satisfy you in the morning, for he has heard all your complaints against him. What have we done? Yes, your complaints are against the Lord, not against us. And so they get out there and uh, quail flies into the camp and they grab a hold of that and they harvest all that and then manna begins to fall um, on the dew in the morning. And the people gather it, but they can't follow the instructions. And so they go through this, the Lord makes it bad, and then he, they seem to do it correctly, and it doesn't go bad. And he tells them to put some in a jar for future generations to see. Chapter 17. At the Lord's command, the whole community of, of Israel left the wilderness of sin and moved from place to place. Eventually, they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water there for the people to drink. So once more, the people complained against Moses. Give us water to drink, they demanded. You got the pattern going here? Did you notice this when you're reading? That you're like, These, wow, they complain a lot. You're, you're supposed to. <laughs> Quiet, Moses replied. Why are you complaining against me and why are you testing the Lord? But tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cries out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? They're ready to stone me. And the Lord says, take the staff, strike the rock, and I will provide the drink. And so he does that. Moses named the place Masa, which means test, and Meribah, which means arguing. Because the people of Israel argued with Moses and tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord here with us or not? While the people were still at Rephidim, you're going to have to imagine however many there are, they're walking up to the rock, you know, either by family by family or somehow, you know, it's going to take a while. Well, while this is all going on, get in your mind. While the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. Moses commanded Joshua, choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill holding the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. And as long as Moses held the staff up, the Israelites would win. If he dropped his hands, they would begin to lose. And so Aaron and Hur held up Moses' arms and the staff and finally, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. And then uh, he tells them at the end of 17 to write down the fact that the Amalekites are done for. Crazy. Guess who doesn't kill all the Amalekites? Saul. Guess who kills Saul? An Amalekite. Well, we'll get to that later. Chapter 18, then he meets up with Jethro, and Jethro says, what you're doing is wearing you out, and he gives him some advice on how to do some organization. Um, so then that kind of wraps up all of these travel chapters, and then 19, we'll hit 19 next week, because that's actually the giving of the law. So we'll do that section next time. So let's look at the travel log. Uh, there's a lot of um, obstacles. 
that the Lord led his people through. Uh, The first one he led them through was the Red Sea in chapters 13 through 15. The Israelites' escape route has been a long and winding one, not at all the most direct way. Now their way is blocked in front and behind. There's no way out. They're trapped. Fear and panic set in. But God makes a way where there wasn't a way before. He opens the sea, and his people pass through it on dry ground, and they praise him. This, uh, as you could imagine, really stuck with Israel and her history. Psalm 77. So if you flip over to Psalm 77, wonderful psalm. Psalm 77. Sixteen and seventeen uh, and eighteen, the author Asaph is setting the stage. His point is nineteen and twenty. Your road, whose road? God's road. Whose will? God's will. God's road. His will led through the sea. Your pathway through the mighty waters, a pathway no one knew was there. No one had seen it. No one knew about it. God knew. You led your people along that road like a flock of sheep with Moses and Aaron as their shepherds. God makes a way where there wasn't a way before. He opens the sea And his people pass through it on dry ground, and they praise him. That is definitely an obstacle the Lord led his people through, not around. Why did he do that? Remember chapter 18? To test them, to know what was in their heart, to mature them, to train them up, to help them grow, to be reminded that God doesn't lead us around obstacles, leads us through. So he makes a way where there wasn't a way before. There's another obstacle he led his people through. Mara and the Sin Desert. There's no water or food. The provisions they've brought from Egypt certainly have been exhausted over these past 30 days of desert travel. There is desperation, fear, anxiety, and faithlessness all setting in. But God provides for them in unexpected and generous ways. He turns the bitter water sweet, leads them to Elim, which was a little oasis, and gives them manna and meat. He led them through Another obstacle, Rephidim. No water again where the Lord has led them. The people are weary, discouraged, 
and angry. The Amalekites begin attacking the weak. But God delivers them using Joshua's sword and Moses' staff. It was a, if you will, a human part. Joshua had to go fight. And then there was a divine part. Moses is up on the hill praying. Obstacles God led his people through. There's some lessons that I think we can learn from this journey, these obstacles. Some lessons regarding God. He takes responsibility for his people's welfare. Though they are faithless, complaining, angry, God has taken responsibility for his people's welfare. He, as these pages tell us, he is completely trustworthy, faithful, and dependable. He provides for both his people's physical and spiritual needs. He gives them food and water. He also gives them a Sabbath. Remember, they're picking up man and they're not supposed to pick it up on the Sabbath. Why? Because they're supposed to be having a day of rest. So he's provided for his people's physical and spiritual needs. And he's reminding them that he alone has the power to bring about change. For this, he deserves praises, not complaints. Some lessons from the journey regarding God. Lessons from the journey regarding the Israelites. They'd left Egypt, but Egypt hadn't left them. They're fearful, not faithful, when they hit adversity because they walk by sight. And they're often distracted on their pilgrimage by the discomforts of unmet appetites. When trials come, they're impatient for relief, ungrateful, forgetful complainers, and prayerless. Pause. With every obstacle they hit, were they right where God wanted them to be? Say it louder. They are right in the center, if I can say it that way. They are right in the center of God's will, and yet they encounter obstacles. Yes? Some whether you're sitting out here or you're listening on the podcast, you think if I'll just follow God, there are no obstacles. He will take me to heaven on a bed of roses and I will never struggle or anything else. If these chapters teach you nothing else and teach me nothing else, it's that I can be smack dab in the middle of God's will. and He will place an obstacle there that he alone can lead me through. Not around, my preference, but through. This is how he grew his people up and how he grows 
you and me up. So regarding faith, many times God doesn't take the direct route. Faith waits on God to provide what he's promised, rather than dictating how he must deliver, and then grumbling when he doesn't. Lesson I've learned before, a lesson from these journeys. Faith waits on God to provide what he's promised, rather than me dictating to him how he must deliver and then grumbling when he doesn't. Faith is revealed most when prayer, obedience, patience, and thanksgiving precede planning or knee-jerk scheming. Some lessons regarding God, some lessons regarding the Israelites, some lessons regarding faith. Because faith learns that God leads through obstacles, not around them. So question, are you facing an obstacle tonight? You might be thinking, well, I'm facing an obstacle, but maybe God isn't, doesn't love me or isn't pleased with me, or you can fill in that blank. From, remember when we talked about Job, the retribution principle? You know, I, because I've done these things, God is... He's kind of, hey, he's right to do it. You know, kind of hold a grudge. Hold me down. Keep me back. He's right to do it. But that's what he's doing. That's why my life looks the way it looks. Nothing could be further from the truth. Would any good parent do that with a son or daughter they loved? No. If you as a human parent wouldn't do that, why in the world would God do that? Answer, he wouldn't. And so he's not. Why are you facing an obstacle? So let's go back. Who left Egypt? Okay. How did the Israelites leave? Okay, Passover. Remember we talked about the doorway, right? Metaphorical doorway. By grace, through faith, under blood. Are these God's righteous, chosen, purchased children like you and me? Yes. Did he lead his children, right? They had plenty of opportunity. I mean, if I were God, I would have let them. I don't know where I would have let them. Off a cliff, probably. But God shows his mercy and grace in how he treated them when they're complaining against him. He's just delivered them. And all they can do is complain against him. How does he treat them? With kindness, long-suffering, mercy, grace. What blood have you and I been purchased with? The blood of the Lamb of God. If the blood of a lamb got them in in the family, (laughs) 
how much more does his blood put you in the family? If he wasn't displeased with them, how much less displeased with you is he? He has not led you to this obstacle. Assuming you have not walked into willful sin, he has not led you to this obstacle. He has led you here to grow you up and mature you. It's for your good. It's not for your destruction. We talked about the Fords and the Chevys here. Ah, hearing no response, I think no. If I uh, work for Ford and I test a Ford car and I run it through these rigorous tests, what do I want to show? Fords are indestructible. Look how tough it is. It can do all these things and it still survives. Amazing. You should buy one of these because look at what it can live through. Now, if you work for Chevy, your job is to get a Ford. And what do you do with the Ford? You're going to put it on a test track that will destroy it to show how, much, how inferior that Chevy is than your Ford. Okay? No? Everybody go to sleep? I told you, my knees and coffee. Okay? I reversed the last one. That's why it made no sense. That if I work for Chevy, I buy a Ford. And then I destroy the Ford to show how superior a Chevy is. I messed up. Okay, well, it's corrected now. Oh, thanks. You get it now. Okay, good. Gosh. God is not testing you to destroy you. That's not what he does. If he's the Ford guy, you're a Ford. And he takes you through tests and trials to prove how tough and strong you are, not to destroy you. Who is the one who takes you out to try and destroy you? It is not your father. Your father does not do that to you. So first, are you facing an obstacle? The first thing I want to speak into is do not begin to think God has fallen out of love with me. Maybe I'm not a Christian anymore. Um, why is he so angry with me? Stop. Get, we've already covered that in Job. The retribution principle is not how God deals with us. How does he deal with us? In grace. And whose bank account do I get a hold of? Jesus. That's how he sees me. Do I deserve it? Absolutely not. But he didn't really ask me about that. He just said, here is his account. You now have a checkbook on Jesus' account. Write checks. I'll cash them. That's your father. Are you facing an obstacle? If you are a follower of Christ, you will encounter obstacles. Guaranteed. You will encounter obstacles. That shouldn't frighten us because it should turn us back as it was supposed to turn the people back 
to God who is capable of doing amazing things, but he does things according to his timetable and his way, not mine. So are you facing an obstacle? Are you at a Red Sea obstacle tonight? You're in an overwhelming situation or circumstance with no way out. You're boxed in. Are you in Amara, bitter water, with no Elim, no oasis ahead? Dry days are growing. Provisions are lacking. And as the supplies dwindle, does your faith. Are you at a Rephidim? Provisions are low again, and the enemy is attacking you where you're most vulnerable. Are you at the Red Sea? Are you in Amara with no Elim in sight? Are you at a Rephidim? Don't be surprised. Don't believe the lies. A lie that you're not a child of God. A lie that um, you deserve this. Um, All kinds of lies that we're tempted to believe. Especially when the enemy gets involved. Do not be surprised. Do not believe the lies. What am I to do? Turn the obstacle into an opportunity. I love these verses in Exodus 14. Exodus 14, 13. They're facing the Red Sea. The Egyptians are behind them. Moses told the people, Don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. I love how the Lord leads. Do not be afraid. What is my first response when I'm facing the Red Sea? Fear, anxiety, I mean, it can build, right? You ever been there? Ever been to a Red Sea before? God told Abraham, don't be afraid. Wait a minute, Abraham, I mean, he's like the, I mean, he's a man of faith. Yes, he is. And God said, don't be afraid. Joshua, my gosh, Joshua the warrior, he's got a whole book in the Bible written about him. What did God tell Joshua? Several times. Do not be afraid. What is our natural response when, we, when we're standing at the Red Sea? Waves and stuff happening. I freak out. I don't know about you. You're probably Christian. I'm not. I abandon hope. I abandon ship. And I just start panicking. Do not be afraid. First, do not be afraid. If God tells Abraham and Joshua, it's okay if he reminds you and me to not be afraid. What else does he say? Stand firm. Stand firm. Why? Because the Lord is going to fight for me. Stand firm. What does that suggest to you? 
I know you've never done this, but in the times when I've stood at a Red Sea staring at it, um, my first thought is like Jacob. I'm going to plan first and pray second. And I'm going to pray that God blesses the plan that I've just come up with looking at the Red Sea. Because I'm walking by sight, not by faith. I am not talking about a name it and claim it thing. I'm just saying is if your first response is fear, that's okay. What's the second thing you should do? Hit your knees. Don't plan. Don't start scheming. Hit your knees and pray. Why? Because God wants me to stand firm right here. I don't know what he's going to do. But he says, stand firm right here. The Lord is going to fight for me. Then be still. These are words I can hardly even pronounce. And some of you are the same way. Be still. Rest. Be at peace. Just stay calm. Be still. If you could see God in your situation, if he were standing right next to you, how would you feel? Pretty good. (laughs) You'd go, you know what? I can probably, you probably got this one. I'll just stand right here and wait for you. I'll see what you're going to do. Just because you can't see him. What has he told us in the book of Hebrews chapter 13? I will never leave you or forsake you. Did he leave his people in the face of the Red Sea? Say no. Will he leave you when you're standing at the Red Sea? No. What's the lie you've believed? Some of us, sometimes. He has left me. In fact, I took a left turn and he took a right turn. And the only reason I'm standing here right now at this is because I missed his direction. Any of, any of you ever said that? Stop it. Stop all self-rescuing action and rest in him. Pray, obey, and follow him. Did it make any sense to the Egyptians that he had taken them to the Red Sea? In a sense, had the Egyptians done it? Sorry, did it make any sense to the Hebrews that he had taken them to the Red Sea? Gosh, what is my mouth doing tonight? Did it make any sense to the Hebrews that he had taken them to the Red Sea? No. Were they right smack dab in the middle of God's will? Yes. What are they facing? Oh my gosh, we're dead. That's what I would have said. Oh my gosh, we're dead. (laughs) They are right where they're supposed to be. Did they understand at the time what God was going to do? Do you say no? (laughs) Some of you think, if I could just get up high enough. It's like, uh, you know, the railroad yard over here? And there's the, I don't know what you call that, tall tower? You call it the tall tower? (laughs) So there's this, the technical term is the tall tower. You get up into the tall tower and you can see all of the, all the trains and all the cars coming in, can't you? That's where you and I want to be. And we think, ah, 
now I can see everything. And now I know what to pick. Guess what? You don't get to go up in the tall tower. And neither do I. There's only one person up in the tall tower, and that's God. And he says, you can't come up here. Trust me. I love you. I've rescued you from Pharaoh. I'm for you. I got this. You, you, Daddy, you can't. You can't have this. I, I might. I might have it. <laughs> I've done some pretty amazing things. I don't know. <laughs> Spoke the entire universe into existence. <laughs> I don't know. That was a pretty good one. <laughs> right? This is back to the book of Job. And I'm laughing. I'm laughing at me first, and then maybe I'm laughing with some of you. We, we just think God is... He, is anything too hard for the Lord? No. Do not be afraid. Stand firm, for the Lord will fight for you. Be still. Particularly pray, obey, and continue to follow him. Do not abandon ship, turn around, run away, start doing something crazy. Just keep on keeping on. You say, well, is this, I mean, is this a promise? I mean, is God going to get me out of this Red Sea? Great question. God will act. God will act. He may act by changing things, as he did at the Red Sea and at Mara. He may change your circumstances or situation. He may act by giving us something else, as he did at Elim. He gave them the manna and the meat. They'd never even, right? They just wanted leeks and stuff from Egypt. He goes, you know what I'm going to give you? I'm going to give you something pretty near and dear to my heart, and that's the manna. And you go, why would manna be near and dear to his heart? I don't know. John 6. Remember Jesus says, I am the bread come from heaven. You want a fun little exercise? Go through the manna and compare it to Jesus. He comes from heaven. He feeds. He's the only thing that will satisfy. He nourishes. Oh, my goodness. Lots of stuff in there. Why? The manna is near and dear to God's heart. He says, you know what? I'm going to give you this. You didn't even know to ask me for this. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give you something you didn't even think about, and it's going to bless your socks off. And you know what they do with it? Complain. He gave them manna and meat. So God will act. He may act by changing things. He may act by giving us something else. Or he may act by giving us the grace to persevere with joy and not complain. As he did for Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty. Paul. I was afflicted probably because of the great vision he had had of heaven. Because probably at Lystra, oh, this is New Testament, sorry. <laughs> We're not going to talk about New Testament. 
Paul is stoned in Lystra. He's probably dead. He's, he goes to heaven, and God sends him back. And he sends him back with a thorn in his flesh. Remember he prays three times for the Lord to take it away? And the Lord said to him, No, my grace is sufficient for you. Get back to work. Right? <laughs> Paul, get back to work. My grace is sufficient for you. Get back to work. God will act. He may act by changing things. He may act by giving us something else. Or he may act by giving us the grace to persevere with joy and not complain. And you will be on display in the public sector when that happens. And be given new opportunities to talk about your Jesus. How are you enduring this? Because I know I would have folded, you know? I would have folded too if it weren't for Jesus supporting me. What? People will listen to you. Suffering is your soapbox. You get to get up on it. And if you will live him out, people will ask questions. God will act. Faith learns that God leads through obstacles, not around them. Obstacles are part of our growing up in faith and maturity. They are not penalties. They are, think of the gym. Um, you know, if you go to the gym... I'm sure some of you do, and let's say the first time you try to do a, oh, I don't know, what is that? Bench press. The first time you try to do a bench press, okay, or something like, you just try to lift weights, right? First time you do it, the weights are light, and you're just hoping, you know, can I get three or four or five of these rascals? You work out, and after a month or so, you go, I, I fairly well have this, so you add five pounds to each side, Right? You've done this. You know what I'm talking about. You can't stay at the same weight and continue to grow. Right? Same is true for faith. Faith has to keep on learning. If the obstacle you're facing today is larger than the one you've faced in the past, thank God. You're getting stronger and therefore, the weight has to get heavier for you to be strengthened. You're encountering bigger, heavier, more immovable things. It's because you're actually, it's a, it's a testimony. God is whispering to you, you've grown. I'm going to give you a little heavier weight now. But don't worry. I'm here with you. We're going to do this together. Push. Why? Daddy, I can't do but two. Good, good, good. Keep pushing two. Keep pushing two because the time's coming. You get to three. Then we'll be at five. Then we'll get to ten. We'll do this. But you need a little bit stronger weight, Bill. You're not growing the way I want you to grow. Keep it up. Keep it up. It's like we're in the gym. And you say, well, that's crazy. Well, in the book of Hebrews, the author says that, we are to, that uh, spiritual growth is of more value than physical training. Spiritual training is more valuable than... Uh, physical training, and the word he uses in Greek is hymnazo. Sound familiar? 
It's where we get our word gymnasium. You think I'm crazy, just hang with me. There's a gymnasium of faith. God is the personal trainer for each one of you. He knows what you can take. He knows what you can't take. He also knows what it will take to stretch you. If I go pay for a trainer, that trainer goes, okay, do this, do this, do this. All right, I know where we're starting, and now I know how to stretch you. Not not break you, but stretch you. Do more than you think you can do, right? God is your personal trainer in the spiritual hymnazo. And if your obstacle today is greater than your one yesterday or last week or last year or last decade, it's because you have grown. He knows it. And he's going to give you a little more weight because he knows what you need to be stretched to continue to be useful and to become more useful to him in the future. It's not because he's trying to destroy you. He's trying to prepare you for what he has next. For next week, read Exodus 19 through 24, the giving of the Ten Commandments. Great story. Enjoy it. Read it. We'll talk about it next week. Let me pray for us. A Father, you are our personal trainer in the spiritual gymnasium. You don't want us to uh, get stagnant. You want us to grow, to continue to get stronger and stronger in faith. And you know exactly what exercises we need and exactly what weight we need. And you organize and orchestrate these obstacles for us uh, so that we will continue to look to you to be empowered by your spirit, to obey you, to be dependent on you, and to work hard at our faith, believing that it is very valuable to you and it will prepare us for whatever you have for us tomorrow or the next day or the next week or the next month or the next year. We want to continue to be used by you, but we know that we have to, uh, have to continue to grow. So we thank you for it. These obstacles are frightening to us. We, we tell you that. You know that. Thank you for reminding us to not be afraid and to continue to look to you and not to ourselves. We love you, and we pray that you would apply these various lessons uh, into our lives this week, please. And we pray for it in the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.